the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, maybe questions about church, whatever's on your heart. All you need to do is to provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of your screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Uh, we got a lot going on tonight. I'm going to be teaching out of 1 Kings chapter 19, actually tonight and next Wednesday uh, in the same chapter. And for us, and I'm sure it is for, for almost everybody in this listening audience, it's it's such an important chapter. It's it's what we're dealing with in these last days and um, how to stay on top of things and to sort of walk with Jesus with a, a more even keel rather than the highs and the lows. I think Elijah and his story teaches us a lot about what he did wrong. Now, remember, the Bible says that Elijah, James, the Lord's half-brother, said that Elijah was a man just like us. An ordinary guy doing an extraordinary work, but because he was just like us, he has ups and downs. And tonight is really about the only recorded failure in Elijah's ministry. The only recorded failure. And because we fail from time to time, um, he teaches us what not to do. And, of course, the Word teaches us how to get back in that place where we need to be with the Lord. So that's tonight here. You can watch it at calvarysa.com if you can't get here. But I always tell you, we've got plenty of room on Wednesday nights, and we would love to have you join us. So that's tonight at 7 o'clock. And obviously, because today is Wednesday, tomorrow is Thursday, and that's our best day of the week here on the program when Paula is live in studio with us on the date day edition of the program. So ladies, especially for you, if you need any encouragement or any help, uh, Paula will be here, and all you have to do is pick up the phone and call. Well, let me get to some questions that have been sent in while we await your phone calls. Uh, this first one is from our email inbox, and it is anonymous. Uh, he or she says, I understand there are two sacraments that we observe, baptism and communion. Please explain exactly what a sacrament is, because I'm told that these have the ability to save someone. I don't understand how either of these independently could replace a personal relationship with Jesus. Thank you so much. 
Uh, I have great respect for your insight and fantastic teaching manner. Well, thank you, Anonymous. I appreciate the kind kind words. You're right. There are two sacraments, only two that we practice. Um, and you, uh, you hit them, baptism and communion. The reason we do that is first Jesus practiced them, taught them. Uh, the book of Acts, we see um, them being implemented in church, uh, the, the early church history. And then, of course, the epistles, all of the epistles uh, also speak about these things. Uh, so those are the two. Anything beyond that is simply tradition. And traditions aren't necessarily bad, but tradition sometimes um, violates the word of God. And, of course, then they're, they're of no value at all. Now, one thing I want to be clear and anonymous, you understand, neither of these sacraments save anyone. I think in liturgical churches in particular, um, we have the idea that we can uh, partake of the Eucharist and there's uh, uh, some salvific mission in it. Uh, that's simply not true. Uh, communion is a memorial celebration that remembers the work of Jesus Christ. It, it should make us the most grateful people on the face of the earth. But it doesn't save us. And in fact, Anonymous, what I do uh, every Sunday, uh, in fact, this coming Sunday will be our communion Sunday, the first Sunday of the month. I make sure everybody understands that communion is a family celebration. We partake in communion because we're believers. And I explain to people that if they're not born again and they have no intention of giving their heart to Jesus Christ, then it's best that they um, uh, just bypass um, communion altogether. So a sacrament just means a tradition that's passed down that has biblical basis for its use, and certainly these two do. Uh, baptism is the same way. We don't get baptized to be saved, and there are um, churches and denominations that have this backwards. Uh, anonymous, they will say, well, no, if you get baptized, then you're saved. And they will likewise say that if you're not baptized, you're not saved. But that's to miss the point. Baptism is uh, uh, an act of obedience, an act of gratitude, because we are saved already. And it simply is a public declaration before the whole world and the angels in heaven, who Peter says loves to look into these things. Um, it's a statement that says, I belong to Jesus. And the baptism is simply we we uh, go under the water. It's a symbol of the old you dying, you being buried. And then you come up out of the water and we come up in the newness of the power of the Holy Spirit. But remember, neither of those can save you at all. And um, when you find those liturgical churches that put too much emphasis, that's an out-of-balance and incorrect view of what the sacraments are. So communion doesn't save you. Baptism doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. And once you're saved, then we want to be obedient. So we will then be baptized. That's our public statement of faith. And we will also then be able to partake and enjoy communion. So that's what it's all about. And we're going to do it again on Sunday here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Let's go to our friend Ruben in Seguin. Ruben, good to hear from you. Hope you have a better connection today. Uh, that's what I was just about to ask. Can you hear me now? I can hear you fine. <laughs> that's great. Okay. I have a question. But before I, I I ask the question, I just want to give a little bit of commentary, I guess, uh, or 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 my my own thoughts. Uh, I just finished Revelation uh, chapter one, uh, so I just wanted to say, oh my word. <laughs> if anyone has never written, I mean, read the Bible, John and the imagery that he uses to describe what he sees on the island of Patmos, I mean, it sent chills all over my body because I could literally see that. I mean, and then when he says that he turned around, I can only imagine, Pastor Ryan. I literally closed my eyes and said, Lord, oh, how <laughs> I wish I could 
turn around and just see what he saw. And then what he said he heard when his voice was like a rushing water. And 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 I was like, oh, like right now I'm just getting chills. Oh, my God. I was, <laughs> oh, my gosh. It just Ruben, before I mean, before you ask your before you ask your question, um, a, a couple of things. Um, I I take Revelation chapter one, and I usually begin in verse ten, uh, and I read that description of Jesus to people who uh, are about to go meet him. Um, that, that's just uh, one of the things I do. It brings such great comfort. And it takes their focus off of the fear of dying and onto the rewards of dying. Peter calls being in the presence of Jesus the goal of our salvation. And can you imagine, and I'll talk to them just like this, I'll say, can you imagine, you're going to hear him call you by a name that you've never heard before. And yet you're going to know he's talking to you and his voice is going to sound like many rushing waters. And you're going to look up and you're going to look in that face shining like the sun in all of its brilliance. And that's our Jesus. So I never, ever, Reuben, miss out on the opportunity to share that. And often, not always, but often, I will do the same thing uh, when we are at their funeral service. Uh, I'll I'll let people know exactly what happened uh, in those seconds before their loved one went to be with Jesus and then what their loved one was staring at right now. So uh, I'm with you on this. This is uh, an unbelievable book. One other comment, Reuben. Uh, Verse 19 in chapter 1 is, as you're going to continue to read on through Revelation, uh, verse 19 is the outline. Uh, the book, uh, John's told to write what you've seen. That's chapter 1. That's the vision of Jesus. What is now is chapters 2 and 3, and that's the church age in the seven letters to the seven churches. And then the final division is what will take place later, and that's from chapter 4 all the way to the end. Those are the things that have not yet happened but will be happening And uh, if you understand it, this is a really easy book. It scares people, but it's a really easy book uh, to to follow through with. Uh, I think I told you yesterday, we're going to be finishing it on Friday. And we've been in it for now more than a year. And um, um, I'm I'm thrilled to do it. Okay, Ruben, what's your question? My question, sorry, and and you see, and that's exactly it, because I don't understand it. And I hope that my question isn't too hard to expound on or, or to explain. Okay. Uh, he first talks, he's talking to the seven churches and then he names them by name. And then he also mentions the seven angels of the seven churches. Um, okay. Now those churches, are they located in the, are they, or rather, are they literal churches Mm-hmm. Literal uh, churches, or are they in the Middle Eastern, or are they all over the world? And who are these seven angels? Okay, that, now the seven be? angels. Yeah, let me let me start there. The seven angels. That's really the pastors of the churches. That word also means messengers in Greek. So he, he's he's writing to the seven pastors in the churches and. Um, Reuben, uh, he, he, they're his mouthpiece. So he's writing to the seven churches. Those churches are real historical churches. Um, some of them were big. Ephesus was, was a great work of God. Some of the others were very, very small and seemingly, from a worldly perspective, insignificant. And uh, but 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 he chose them for a reason because through those remember chapter one says this entire book is a prophecy so there is prophetic value in those uh, chapters two and three the seven letters and those churches represent different church ages they also represent different stages of our walk with the Lord that's why the corrections need to be taken very very personally. Uh, but they're real historical churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, and there are, are uh, churches that quite regularly, Reuben, uh, take tourist trips to, uh, to uh, Asia Minor, to Turkey, and, and uh, have a kind of a teaching tour at each of the sites of the seven churches. Now, they're not all in existence today. Some still are, uh, but they are 
uh, seven real historical churches. So we need to understand that. But they're also important for their prophetic value uh, as it relates to us. Reuben, thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. Let's go to line two. We've got Mike holding on line two. Mike, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Ron, Pastor Ron. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you great, Mike. Okay, uh, Matthew 17, uh, verse 19, and, and a couple of verses around there. It, it's about the, the, the disciples trying to cast out a demon. Yes. Mike, are you there with Yeah, I'm still here. And okay. so Jesus, your... Jesus rebukes them, and I kind of want to... Yeah, I got, I got the. Well, we're having trouble with you, Mike. What do you, can you get your question to me? Can you hear me now? I can't. Right now, I can, but then just before that, I couldn't. Well, I just got to my radio. Yeah, so Jesus rebukes them and and, and refers to them in verse seventeen as an unbelieving and perverse generation, and he rebukes the demon. Then the disciples came to him and said, "Why couldn't we drive it out?" And my question is really a question about faith. And I, even though I've been around for a while, I, I still have some questions about this. Because he said, you have so little faith. That's why you couldn't drive it out, is what I'm understanding. And if you had faith as, as small as a mustard seed, you can say, move, move this mountain and it'll be moved. And nothing will be impossible to you. And my question, and I think it's pretty simple, but I want you to clarify if you could, that my understanding, and I've been a Christian a long time, is that God uh, reached out to me and granted me faith by His grace to to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and and that that gift that He gave me enabled me to receive Him by faith. Am, am I good? Am I good so far? Yes. And then, and then, because I struggle now and again, maybe more often than not with strengthening my faith. And I know, you know, several things that I can do by praying, reading the Scripture. You know, there's plenty of tribulation that I go through that, that God uses to strengthen my faith. But I guess my question is, like, so I can ask for more faith, and He'll grant it to me by His grace? And this is my question, if it makes any sense. Like, I'm guessing that these disciples wanted to have as much faith as they possibly could. And, and and why didn't they have more? And then for those of us, and I'm not the only one, that want a lot more faith, isn't that all granted by Jesus Christ as I seek Him and be obedient to His will? Does this make sense? Yeah, Mike, it does. I, I think the, the misunderstanding is is the, the Jesus' rebuke. Um, uh, from your perspective, when somebody says, because your faith is so small, uh, you're absolutely right, and Jesus makes it really clear in this passage that all we need is a little bit of faith in him. Our faith has to, to have substance, and he is the substance of our faith. But but this is a completely different failure um, uh, on behalf of the disciples. Uh, I actually just taught this here at Calvary Chapel out of Mark's Gospel. Um, um, the, the, the disciples... Uh, were, were left down uh, when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And when they came down from that wonderful experience, uh, we've got the, the disciples and the Jewish religious leaders arguing about how to or to cast out a demon, why they couldn't. And, and uh, uh, you know, when Jesus comes to them, uh, and he, he casts a demon out. They want to know, why couldn't we cast him out? Mark's gospel gives us very specific information. He says uh, very clearly that, that this was a failure presumption. You'll remember that prior to this, not long before this, the disciples were sent out by Jesus two by two, and they were given power and authority over demon spirits. And they would cast them out and they came back rejoicing that even the demons tremble uh, and in our presence at your name. And Jesus told them, don't rejoice because the demons tremble, but rather that your name is written in the book of life. 
Here's what happened when this demoniac boy's father came to his disciples. He was looking for Jesus. Jesus wasn't there. And and they said, oh, we can cast him out. And they just assumed, Mike, that because they did it once, they can do it again. And so they would do the same kind of thing that happened on that trip. And what Jesus is telling them is, look, you're you're encountering a different level of demon here. And this is a kind of demon that comes out only by prayer and some uh, translations say fasting. Let me put it in terms that we would understand. He's saying you can't use the power that you had before today. Every day we need fresh power. And this is exactly what was going on. They they thought, oh, you know, can you cast the demon out? Sure, we do it all the time. And then they couldn't. And the reason they couldn't is because they didn't seek the Lord. They didn't seek fresh power. They just assumed it was something. Now, the reason that's so important, Mike, is because so many of us every day, we we presume upon the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives because we've had an experience in the past like it. And Jesus is just telling them that every single day of our lives, we need fresh power. Every single day. And what what God did to us yesterday has no value today. And so being in the presence of the Lord, being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, is is absolutely essential if we're going to be doing any of those things. So that's what this story is about. One other comment, Mike. This whole idea of Jesus said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you could say to that mountain, be thou removed and cast into the sea. Uh, Jesus doesn't care about casting mountains into seas. We literally, in a Jewish thought, Zechariah uh, in his prophecy makes it clear. A mountain in Jewish thought is an immovable problem. Something that's so big, so immense, that it's impossible. And Jesus says, all things are possible with God. So just a little bit of faith in him, and those mountains can be removed out of your way. Good question, Mike. Thank you very, very much. I might even recommend to you that you go to uh, calvaryessay.com and um, uh, listen to the Bible study that it just this past Sunday out of the Gospel of Mark. Let's go to Greg on line three from Bolverde. Greg, thank you for being patient and holding. You're on the air. Oh, no problem. It's uh, it's always fun to listen to other people, you know, like ask their questions and you know, just like being on the air. But anyway, uh, the question is, I think it was yesterday you had mentioned that you're going to be doing a teaching on uh, divorce and remarriage. And just want to know when that was and when would it be possible to get a, like a CD of that? Yeah, Greg, I'm going to be doing it this Sunday and the following Sunday uh, out of Mark chapter 10. Um, I'm going to focus on marriage um, from God's perspective uh, this Sunday and in divorce. And then uh, next Sunday, the following Sunday, uh, be focusing more on divorce and remarriage and when it's possible. So it'll be the next two Sundays. And, and those studies will be posted on our website uh, the same day, so Sunday, but but maybe an hour or two after third service ends, they will be posted on our website, calvaryessay.com. So um, uh, we'll, we'll maybe, I think I'm being told three hours after. So uh, that's this Sunday and the following Sunday. Uh, it's possible it could stretch into a third Sunday, but I'm going to try to do it in just two. So um, divorce and marriage from God's perspective this Sunday, and then we're going to finish up with divorce and remarriage when it is permissible. Does that help you, Mike? Yeah. Do y'all uh, broadcast your your uh, services on the internet? Uh, yes. Our all, everything we have everything on the on the internet. Um, uh, pretty pretty much right after third service on Sunday. Okay, so it's not live. It's it's uh, replayed afterwards. No, no, live stream. Oh, no, we do have live stream at calvarysa.com uh, for what, whatever service uh, you choose. We have an 830 service, a 1015 service, and an 1159 service. And all three of those are live streamed um, um, as I'm doing it. So you can watch it live um, as well. Okay, great. Thanks. Thank you, Greg. Sorry I called you, Mike. Looking at too many names on the on the board. Appreciate it very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. We've got two minutes. Let me see if I can find a two minute question. Um, 
Here's one I can do easy. This is from Mark. He says, are tattoos biblical? Well, tattoos are only biblical in the negative sense. Uh, when, when, for instance, the prophets of Baal uh, were cutting themselves, uh, they were worshiping false gods. So they're not biblical, but there's nothing wrong with tattoos, Mark. Uh, if you are interested in, in uh, body art and in tattooing your body, uh, and and you have a, 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 it's not a violation of your conscience between you and the Lord, then go ahead and do it. Go ahead and do it. Make sure that they're tattoos that honor the Lord or don't dishonor him at the very least. But yeah, there's nothing at all wrong with tattoos. Some of the people that I love most in my life are pretty tatted. Several of my pastors are pretty tatted, uh, and uh, they love Jesus with all of their heart. Uh, and I, I just think there's nothing wrong with, with the body art uh, in the process. So, Mark, if that's what you want to do, feel free to uh, to enjoy it and t- tell a story with it. Tell a story. We've got some uh, a lady in my church I'm thinking of in particular who has her testimony tattooed in pictures uh, on her shoulder and arm, and, and she uses that to witness to people. So it is a, uh, it is a, a good, good thing. So appreciate it very much, Mark. I think we are just about there is the music. Uh, so we are about out of time for the first half of the program. We would love your calls and questions. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Wednesday show, 340-9585. Let's go to Cindy calling from San Antonio on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You are on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Thank you for taking my call. Mm-hmm. I ran across something rather interesting this morning. Now, it is in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, and it is verse 29. Now, what's going on is he's letting, it looks like the disciples know about his death and, and that he's going to be glorified, but there, it seems to me like there's other people hanging around, too. Now, the verse that I was really interested in, uh, well, it's actually right before... Um, it says, then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and will glorify it again. That's the Father speaking. Now, now the part that really caught my eye is the crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And I'm wondering if the crowd, if the part of the crowd that said it thundered really weren't believers and then the others that said it was an angel had spoken to him, if they maybe heard an audible voice. So that's my um, that's my question today. I'm going to get off the phone and take the radio and put it back on. <laughs> Bye. Bye, Cindy. Thank you very, very much. A couple of things. This this is just sort of narrative that John adds. Of course, this doesn't uh, isn't included in any of the synoptic gospels, um, but um, um, John is just giving us. Uh, this information, and this is what the crowd would have been saying. Um, the crowd that was there heard it and said that it had thundered. Uh, it's not a matter of believers here, Cindy. They weren't believers. Jesus was proclaiming the kingdom of God uh, to them. He was approaching the end of his ministry. And, um, you know, sometimes when uh, somebody hears something from the Lord, it doesn't make sense to others. We find a similar story in uh, Saul of Tarsus, who was the Apostle Paul, in his conversion. Um, so it's it's just that they, they couldn't understand the voice that came from heaven. Um, and and uh, there were others who disagreed. Jews were always arguing about their interpretations of things. And some would say, well, I heard thunder. And some would say, no, that was the voice of an angel. Uh, that's just what John 
is reporting like a like a good reporter he's just accurately describing it and and the the, the verse for me that I love in this is verse 30 when Jesus said this voice was for your benefit not mine now I have glorified it and will glorify it again um Jesus was the perfect son of God. And um, when that voice came from heaven, that was him giving Jesus a stamp of approval. Um, that he says, I'm going to glorify it again, Cindy, was uh, is, is going to happen at the resurrection. So that's what he's talking about here. And it's not a matter of were they believers or not. Uh, this was just a, a majestic voice from heaven that, that the only way anybody could hear it was to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And, of course, the, the people in the audience at this point didn't have. Good question, Cindy. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question that came in uh, anonymously from our email inbox. This is Pastor Ron. We were at a church service where the guest preacher got a little political and took opportunity to politicize a few things. He also wore an anti-abortion t-shirt to the church. Now, while I'm with him on the anti-abortion stand, but using the time we worship and hear from our king for fleshly pleasure really dampened my spirits um, and my Sunday. I know this preacher has his own good testimony of how God worked in his life. I just felt so bad how yesterday's worship time turned out. Please share your thoughts. Well, obviously, you're not talking about here at Calvary Chapel. Um, This anonymous is something that uh, I deal with quite regularly here. The the fact that a a, a preacher, a a guest preacher, or the, the, the regular preacher at a church would take time that could be devoted to proclaiming the Word of God, proclaiming the goodness of God and the return, the soon return of God, uh, to, to, to take the time that could be used to teach and equip the saints for the work of ministry um, on, on political positions is unconscionable to me. So I agree with you completely. Um, I think to uh, wear a T-shirt that is anti-abortion uh, and, and I don't want anybody to make, misunderstand me. I am as anti-abortion as you can get. Um, but you see, when I'm up there teaching the Bible, I want people to see Jesus. I don't want them to see a political stand or an activist stand. For me, I want them to be able to see and hear Jesus. And uh, I apologize to you um, because that's not what you heard Sunday. Um uh, I'm not suggesting this preacher isn't saved. You said you know he has his own good testimony of how God worked in his life. But uh, what he did was he robbed you, Anonymous, and he robbed all the people that were there. And he diverted from his purpose, and his purpose is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to teach the word of God, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and to mar that with politics or a political activism position, I think, is to do a disservice not only to his calling as a preacher, a proclaimer of God's word, but a disservice to all of the people like you who were in it. So uh, I, I just wouldn't spend any time in a church like that. Now, this may be um, um, the the exception rather than the rule. Um, and maybe the pastor who invited him to teach uh, will be a little more careful the next time about who he allows in his pulpit. But uh, the the pulpit is not for the things of this world. The pulpit is to proclaim the word of God, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and that way the entire counsel of God is being taught and the people of God are being equipped. So um, I'm sorry uh, for you. Um, Pray for him. Give him some grace at the same time. Uh, I think it might be worthwhile, not not in a critical way, but I think it might be worthwhile to go to your pastor and say, you know, when you were gone, your guest speaker, he did this, and I just thought you would want to know, without necessarily engaging him in any conversation, unless he opens the door to do it. Sorry for that, Anonymous. Here is a question from Jesse from our email inbox. Hi, Pastor Ron. Yesterday, now this is, I got this question, I think on Monday. Uh, and um, 
Yesterday we didn't get to it. We had so many questions. Uh, yesterday I was scolded by my mom because I don't go by and take the kids to see her and grandpa and I don't show compassion for what my family goes through in life. I really don't think about this because my family lives their own lives. Do I need to make it a point to see my family and bring the grandkids? I told my mom she can come over anytime. However, she said it is my job to bring the grandkids and she's my mom. She also highlighted that I stopped talking about Jesus. Um, I told them it is because they see me as a hypocrite. And so I stopped talking to my unbelieving family about Jesus. Um, I would be more honest. Now, it seems like you and your mom sort of have the same problem from different directions. Uh, you don't want to take your kids over there because um, uh, they they think you're a hypocrite uh, and it's just more comfortable for you to stop talking. You need to let your grand or your parents see their grandchildren. Um, but from her perspective, she needs to be proactive in coming to see them at your house as well. I, you know, I have a hard time. I know family dynamics are, are difficult. And certainly in a letter like this, I can't get all of the details in the background. But I have a hard time with families that can't sit down and talk. Uh, I, I would tell you, tell your mom, if I were you now, um, and, and, and um, Jesse, I, I don't know you. So um, if I were you, I'd sit down with mom and say, well, the reason I don't bring my kids over is because you, you, talk, you tell me I'm a hypocrite. And so there's no point in, in talking to you about Jesus. You're not going to hear it anymore. Um, but, but you know who I am. You know I love Jesus. And, and, and try to come up with a solution. I wouldn't want to go to my family if every time I went to my family, especially bringing my kids, um, I was going to be the object of ridicule. So I just say, you know what? Can't we start over? Mom, I want you to be in heaven. And, and you obviously don't care about that. So I want to tell you about Jesus, but at the same time, you always point to me and say, well, you're a hypocrite. You do this or you do that. And just say, Mom, I'm just doing the best I can. I want to follow Jesus. I want to get to heaven. I know I'm going there, but I want you to be there as well. And I think those kinds of conversations are, are so direct. And, and I'm, I'm talking about doing this lovingly, not not confrontationally. These kinds of conversations uh, are, are either going to produce fruit or they're going to further divide. And, you know, the the unbelieving people in the family, they need to make the choice. But um, I, I, I wouldn't let my mom scold me. <laughs> it's that simple. I just wouldn't let my mom scold me. Um, and I would be very, very direct and honest with her. And I would do so looking for a solution to the impasse that's going on. So, Jesse, uh, if I had more detail, maybe I could give more. But without the detail, uh, that's pretty much all I've got. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Curtis. Uh, Pastor Ron, why would a loving God allow children to get cancer and other diseases? If you can explain that, then I'll believe. Well, Curtis, I'm going to explain it, and you're still not going to believe. Um, you're, you're not being honest. Your heart uh, is hard. You want nothing to do with God. And this really is a rather sophomoric question. Um, why would God allow children to get cancer and other diseases? Cancer and other diseases are in this world. Uh, I have a dear friend of mine, um, um, uh, a man I love with all of my heart. And and I just found out that he has a, a mass uh, where they're taking biopsy today to find out what it is. And my heart's broken for him and for his wife. Um, and, and while he's an adult, he's God's child. Well, God allows that just the same way he allowed Jesus to be a victim of the wrath of God as he died for the sins of the world. We live in a fallen world, and sin and disease is part and parcel of the world that we live in. So I guess, Curtis, your position would be that a loving God would not allow anybody to get those kind of diseases, but that's a fact of life. Now, God heals some, but most people don't get healed from these kind of diseases. Let me ask you a question, Curtis. Why would a loving God allow his own son to die for the sins of someone like you with a hard heart toward him? He did it because he loved you 
And in that statement, he proved once and forever just how much he loved you. And if you're not willing to look at that cross and then the empty tomb that validates that cross, then even an explanation about why kids get sick and die, you won't believe then either. Now this was a question, Curtis, that I had last week right after the shooting in Uvalde. Uh, Here's what I can tell you happened in Uvalde that day. Um, A a demonically possessed young man took life. And God sent his angels to take those kids into his presence. And while our hearts are broken, our hearts aren't broken for those kids. Those kids are, are looking at Jesus. But our hearts are broken for their families. Our hearts are broken for a community that has been Oh, just ravaged by this insanity of sin. But bad things happen in a world where people rebel against God. And that's exactly what's happened. We have uh, a young girl in our church, and this is just one now, but this is always the case, Uh, a young girl in our church now who's going through chemotherapy. Uh, and we wonder, oh, Lord, she's 14 years old. Please, Lord, please help her. Um, and you know what? His grace will be sufficient for her, uh, whether he miraculously heals her or not. So, Curtis, I pray that you'll open your heart, look at the cross, investigate the empty tomb, And come to the only reasonable conclusion. God loved you so much that he allowed his son to be punished and brutally beaten unto death so that you could live. We don't challenge God with our infantile questions. Emily asks, Pastor, can Christians be superstitious? Well, I know Christians are superstitious, Emily, but we shouldn't be. Um, I was a pretty superstitious guy. I was a baseball player in college and and, uh, wanted to play professional baseball. Uh, Never made it. wasn't that good. But uh, baseball players are notoriously superstitious. And I was crazy superstitious. And now I can only look back on my life now that I know Christ and laugh at myself. So, um, no, there's no reason for Christians to be superstitious. Um, um, If you are, Emily, then... Um, you, you really need to, to let the Spirit of God look into your heart and examine why you're superstitious in a world where we have a sovereign God who is directing our steps, uh, a sovereign God who, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, uh, has created us to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. I mean, there is a plan that God has for each and every one of our lives, and superstition simply has no place in the life of a Christian. I think Jesus would say to those of us who are superstitious, oh, ye of little faith, unbelieving and perverse generation. That was the call that we got in the first half of the program. So I hope that makes sense to you. Juan says, if salvation is a free gift, why must we believe in Jesus to receive it? Well, it's simple, Juan. Um, If I buy you a gift and you never open it, then that gift has no value for you. Is it sitting in a box or it's all wrapped up uh, like a Christmas present? Uh, You don't know what's in there. It could be like $10 billion. It could be the cure for for cancer. I mean, there could be something in there that, that would enrich your life and the lives of others immeasurably. But if you just keep it in the box and don't open it, then it has no value. It's still there. It's still available to you. But you've got to receive it in order to benefit from it. So Jesus gave a gift to everyone. Um, uh, The the theological terms are the the gift is efficacious for everyone, sufficient for, satisfactory for everyone, but only efficient for those who receive it. So that's, you're right, salvation is a free gift. You don't have to do anything. It's, It's offered to the whole world. But in order for that gift to have any value for you, uh, what you must do 
is receive it personally. And in the process of receiving it personally, you are creating a fellowship, a relationship between you and God through the person of Jesus Christ. So that's why we have to receive it. And, and Jesus is the only source. She says, why must, must we believe in Jesus? Because there's no, uh, there's no other source. Only Jesus was sinless and perfect. Um, and only Jesus um, died for the sins of the world. Every other person has to deal with the sin issue. And um, the book of Revelation, Reuben is getting excited about reading it. Uh, the book of Revelation says uh, there will be nothing impure. Nothing evil, nothing wicked will, will be permitted in heaven. That's why we have to be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Here's a question from Adriana. She said, Pastor, can a Christian be pro-choice politically? Um, Adriana, uh, um, um, all things are possible. I don't think a thoughtful, mature Christian can be pro-choice politically. I'll go one step further. I don't think a a genuine Christian can vote for a pro-abortion candidate. It's just that simple. I don't know how we could ever justify that to the Lord. So while we don't want to get involved with telling people how to vote or what party to vote for, uh, I think this is an issue that is so cut and dried. 65 million babies have been murdered in this country since 1973 when the United States Supreme Court said that it was okay, legal, to do so. 65 million children slaughtered. How can a Christian support that? Now, if I'm reading your question right, Adriani, you're probably a Democrat. Personally, you are probably pro-life. But, um, you know, you vote for Democrats, typically, and some Republicans, but mostly Democrats. Uh, you are endorsing the murder of unborn children. So I don't see how that can happen. Now, I've had people who would answer that question by saying, well, well, I'm more than a one-issue candidate, and, and I'm pro-life, and I believe that we ought to have all of the aliens and the, the, the people from uh, other countries who are under persecution and, and, and under threat of dying. Then if you're pro-life, you've got to let them come across the borders. I think they're completely separate issues. I am pro-life because as a Christian, we cannot disagree with our Christ. And I don't know, Adriana, how we would ever explain to Jesus why we would publicly support with our vote a candidate that we know is murdering children. Now, we've got this issue in the news. It's coming up uh, because uh, there are some uh, Catholic bishops that have been bold enough to say um, um, we're going to deny the Eucharist, we're going to deny communion to um, some of our political leaders who are staunchly supportive of the murder of unborn children. They identify as Catholic. That's who they say they are. But the Catholic Church that they identify with says you can't kill children, and yet they're doing it all the time. President Biden has been the subject of, of uh, he's a devout Catholic, his own description. Um, other than the fact that he needs to be a devout Christian, a born-again believer, um, even his own church tells him that his policy is anathema. So I, I don't know how a Christian can be pro-choice politically, even when they say, but, well, personally I'm pro-life, but I don't want it to, to, to um, force my beliefs on, on other people. Um, this is a, a place where I think we have to stand for righteousness. I just don't think there's any other way. Now let me say one thing and then I'll move on. Um, I'm not suggesting by this that there is a righteousness that is available in the Republican Party. We all know that's not true. The lesser of two evils, perhaps, at least in voting for many Republicans, we're not, um, uh, we're not condemning um, unborn children to die. Uh, so I'm just suggesting, very simply, that we've got to vote our consciences as our consciences line up with the Word of God. 
So that's the best I can do. I think we've got time for one more question. John says, uh, do, we, do believers have real authority over the devil or demons? Um, no, John, we, we have no authority. We, we have the authority that's given to us. It's a borrowed or a usurped authority that uh, God gives us over demons. Um, that authority is only available when we're walking in the power of the Spirit, when we're walking with Jesus in righteousness. I think the enemy is always looking for those Christians who are, are righteous in word, but not righteous in deed. I mean, he knows he has us there, and they, they beat us up, and they pound us. Um, but we don't have authority over the devil, nor do we have authority over the demons Jesus has given us uh, a position of authority from which to work. Let me say this, John. Um, the idea that we can bind the devil is nonsense. It's charismatic foolishness. Only Jesus, the strong man in his parable, can bind the thief proving he's stronger. So our authority is a borrowed authority, and the only way that we can do it, John, is to be with Jesus. I personally, I don't ever want to talk to the devil. Um, If I'm being um, uh, pressured or oppressed, uh, I want to be so close to Jesus that I can say, Lord, you, you take care of that. I just want to focus on you. And you know what he always does, John? He always does. Good question. Thank you for it. Hey, appreciate you tuning in today. Time went fast. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Tonight I'm going to be doing 1 Kings chapter 19, just the first 13 verses. Um, And I think it's an important, applicable study to a lot of us, especially for us here at Calvary Chapel where we are. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Paula will be live in studio with us tomorrow on the date day edition of the show. Lord willing, we'll be back at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.